himself to us and has pursued relationship with us. That is incredible. It's incredible that the opening line of the Bible is uh, that God would say, let there be light. These opening phrases of God speaking and saying, let us, a very Trinitarian statement, let us make man in our image. How incredible. As Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that God in various times and various ways has spoken to us. And he's spoken through prophets. And you see that in the Old Testament, these prophets that would come and declare the heart of God. Uh, to, the, to the kings and to the nations and, and, uh, and, and holy men of God have been carried along and moved by the Spirit to write the scripture that we have. God revealing himself. That is incredible. I hope you know the value of that. And yet the antithesis of that is that <clears throat> someone else speaks too. <laughs> Satan. And one of the first places we see Satan speaking, he is lying did God really say you shouldn't eat of every tree of the garden? And in that phrase, he lies and says, every tree of the garden. The Lord never said that. He said one tree. So we have the father of lights, God the father, and we have the father of lies, and they both speak. And verse 1 of chapter 3 tells us that man speaks as well. And because there's a father of lies out there whose aim is to deceive and slander and poison. That so quickly can be what comes out of us. Being deceived in our hearts and speaking forth that deceit. And so James says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Man speaks and man can speak good. <laughs> And man can speak bad. And so there's just a warning there for those that would have a call of God upon their life to be teachers of the word of God. It's interesting to me that James says this on the heels of one of the most controversial passages in the New Testament. Where he indicts the man who would say that our faith can be separated from our works. The man that would say faith can just sit there by itself and have nothing to show for it and be good with God. Good to go. Waiting for the rapture of the church. I'm not going to do anything with this faith. And, the, and James just indicts that man and says, that is a lonely faith. It does not work. It cannot work. It cannot save. <clears throat> and there are many who would just brush this passage off. They would not teach it. They would water it down. They would declare that works are not an important part of a Christian life. They would label those who say works are essential they would call them legalists or teachers of the law. And James says, be careful. Maybe you should not be the one to teach this passage. You'll receive a strict judgment. First of all, by the Lord, and of course, a hard judgment by men as well. The Lord doesn't hold the teaching of his word or the feeding of his sheep lightly. Much study needs to be done in rightly dividing the word of truth. Paul says to the young pastor in the pastoral epistle, 2 Timothy 2, he tells him, be diligent, work hard to study, to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You know, it's something that I labor in, I'm not the best at it, I want to grow continually, but the hours that are put into one message for you guys and the studying and the laboring and, and you know, presenting myself to the Lord approved and, 
and, you know, reading the books and spending the time in prayer and, you know, digging into the text. And, uh, man, it is essential to rightly divide the word of truth. That rightly divide means to plow straight lines, plow straight lines through the word. You know, one blessing of being part of a Calvary is just this method of line by line and verse by verse and going through the word and you're able to get a a sense of the context of things and you have to press through passages that are difficult to teach on that would be very easy to just skip over. But we plow straight lines through the word so that we could say as Paul in Acts chapter 20 to the Ephesian elders, This day I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of the word of God. Man, I would love, before this heart stops ticking, you know, got a few years, hopefully, unless the Lord tarries, that I would be able to preach Genesis through Revelation to you and and just bring the word of God in its entirety before you. Who knows if that'll happen or not, but it certainly is an aim. As Paul tells Timothy again in 2 Timothy 4, He says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. You know, I've had a headache all night long. You know, today's one of those days where it's like, ah, man, every, it's just this, there's like something in my back going up, you know, and it's just like, ah, man, I'd mess my collar up. (laughs) I've had this headache. Um, Man, it's just hurting, and this would be one of those out of season times, like, nagging right there it's like, hey preach the word preach the word come back to the text and let the word of god go forth in power as he goes on to say that you can convince with it and rebuke and exhort with all long suffering and teaching if you're here today and you desire the position of an elder or a pastor at the ch- this church paul tells timothy you desire a good thing but elders are to be able to teach that's one of the qualifications and so you go into that office with Fear and trembling. Now, in the five chapters of the book of James, James, James gives us ten pillars that hold up the Christian faith. Ten pillars about faith. First of all, faith without works cannot be called faith. Faith without works is dead, and a dead faith is worse than no faith at all. Faith must work, it must produce, it must be visible and inspire action in our lives. Secondly, faith endures through the trials. The trials come and go, but a strong faith will face them head on. Faith understands temptation and not allow us to give in to our lusts and slide into sin. We're not walking in faith when we get our eyes off Jesus and sin. Faith obeys the word of God. It hears the word and then it obeys the word of God. Faith produces doers. Faith harbors no prejudice. Faith and favoritism cannot live together. And it's here where we see our sixth pillar of faith. Ezio Penzia was a singer at the Metropolitan Opera. His favorite tongue twister was, Three gray geese in the green grass grazing. Gray were the geese and green was the grazing. Actor Lawrence Oliver often warms up with this one before going on stage. Betty Butter bought a bit of butter, but she said this butter's bitter. If I put it in my batter, it will make my batter bitter. But a bit of better butter will make my better butter better. <laughs> so Betty bought her better butter, better butter, and made her batter better. Okay. <laughs> 
A twister used by some radio and TV announcers before they perform is, the seething sea ceaseth, and thus the seething sea sufficeth us. <laughs> Alrighty then. Well, we're done now. Let's pray. Okay. We see that faith controls the tongue. Faith controls the tongue. A young man working in the produce department was asked by a lady if she could buy half a head of lettuce. He replied, half a head? Are you serious? God grows these things as whole heads and that's how we sell them. You mean, she persisted, that after all these years I've shopped here, you won't sell me half a head of lettuce? Look, he said, if you'd like, I'll go ask the manager. She indicated that that would be appreciated. So the young man marched to the front of the store. You won't believe this, but there's a lame brain idiot of a lady back there who wants to know if she can buy a half a head of lettuce. He noticed the manager gesturing and turned around to see the lady standing behind him, obviously having followed him to the front of the store. And this nice lady was wondering if she could buy the other half, he concluded. <laughs> Later in the day, the manager cornered the young man and said, that was the finest example of thinking on your feet I've ever seen. Where did you learn that? The young man said, well, I grew up in Grand Rapids. And if you know anything about Grand Rapids, you know that it's known for its great hockey team and its ugly women. The manager's face flushed and he interrupted, Hey, my wife is from Grand Rapids. At which the young man replied, And which hockey team did she play for? <laughs> you got to be able to control the tongue. James's practical Christianity. D.L. Moody called it shoe leather Christianity. This is living out the word of God. It's the rubber meets the road stuff. At the center of practical Christianity, James has a lot to say about the tongue. In chapter 1, verse 19, he told us, My beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, but slow to speak and slow to wrath. In verse 26 of chapter 1, he says, If anyone among you thinks he is religious, but does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. In chapter 2, verse 12, he said, So speak, and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. A main idea in our text here today is that we need to recognize that the tongue is untamable. It's capable of great damage. It's damaged the whole entire world. And it's an indicator of our inner man, our hearts. But God has a gracious provision in the gospel for our sinful words. And after he's provided the remedy for our hearts that flows out through the tongue, he desires to use that new changed tongue to go bring change to the world. Verse 2 tells us, For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect or mature man, able also to bridle the whole body. I was encouraged this week to hear James, the half-brother of Jesus, an apostle, uh, a writer of scripture, to hear him say that we all stumble in many things. I wonder how many times that James, as a young man, sinned against his older half-brother Jesus. You know, the, the word tells us that he didn't believe that Jesus was God and that Jesus was the Messiah, and he mocked him and considered him to be out of his mind. How many times did James speak to Jesus sinfully and spitefully and complaining to him about Mary as we see that seems to have happened in the Gospels? 
We all stumble in many things. When Solomon is dedicating the temple in the Old Testament in in 1 Kings 8, he prays out for those who would come to this temple in repentance of their sin. And he says, when they sin against you, and then he has a parenthesis in his prayer, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them into the enemy, and they take them captive to the land of the enemy far or near. Yet when they come to themselves in that land where they were taken captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land, those who took them captive, saying, we've sinned and done wrong, we've committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive and pray to you toward the land that you give to their fathers, the city that you've chosen, that this temple I've built for your name, Then hear in heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause and forgive your people who've sinned against you all their transgressions which they've transgressed against you and grant them compassion before those who took them captive that they may have compassion on them. Man, what a prayer. This is incredible. It's a long prayer. He goes on and on. And he keeps coming back to, but man, when people sin, And they go away and they're in the midst of judgment for sin and and you bring them to their senses and they cry out in repentance, hear from them and forgive them. Those are encouraging things. There is none who does not sin. John would tell us that if we say that we don't have sin, we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves. Every one of us in this room is walking through this life, stumbling and bumbling along. We battle the flesh and we pray that we would battle well each day. Here we see that the battle is to keep the tongue in check. And that this battle for the tongue is among one of the top pillboxes of the enemy that we need to take out. It is a central stronghold, a concrete fortification that has trenches leading to every other area of our life and of our faith. Proverbs 13.3 tells us that he who would guard his mouth preserves his life but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction peter tells us that if we would love life and see good days let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit we've all been deeply hurt by words we feel the wound still don't we but have we not also been greatly blessed by words by the lips of the Barnabases out there, the sons of encouragement, the preachers of the good news and the glad tidings of great things, our lips can also be used for something wondrous, for the great plan and mission of God to reconcile men to himself. 1 Corinthians tells us in chapter 9, well, before I get into that, Paul will, or James, who's read this? James? James, Paul, John, you know. Hammers home his points with three illustrations, first of all being the bit and the bridle. He says, bridle your tongue. If you're able to bridle your tongue, you're a mature man. There's maturity there and it shows that you're able to bridle the rest of your body and hold those other fleshly lusts and affections in check. Paul would say to us in 1 Corinthians 9.27 that he disciplines his body and brings it into subjection, lest when I've preached to others... I myself should become disqualified. There's a discipline of his own body. Though he was a preacher, though he was an apostle, though he was a minister, he knew very well 
That he was one step away from backsliding, from being disqualified. There needed to be a discipline. We have a, a Chiweenie dog, half Chihuahua, half Weenie. His name's Dudley. He is a barker, okay? Especially when people come to the door. And in an effort to train him, don't be a hater, we got a shock collar. Now this shock collar goes from a shock value of, well, you can beep it, okay? So that's what you mostly do is beep it. Or you can shock from one to 100 in a shock value. What do we call it? Static encouragement? Static correction. Static correction. <laughs> okay. A little bit of discipline for Dudley, okay? Don't worry, I tried it on myself between 1 and 10 before I used it on him. You know, just a couple little... And, and there's discipline there. There's correction. Just having the collar on. He's a different dog. He's a new man. We would do well to strap that thing to our throat for a few weeks and give the controller... <laughs> to our wives and to our children and then just give them free reign one to a hundred you set the value baby lest I myself should be disqualified Psalm 39 1 I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me Oh, that we would pack some duct tape and just slap it over our face to keep things in check, guarding our mouth, putting the muzzle on. Now, it seems like easily we could just resort to self-strength there, white-knuckling it, really trying to guard our own ways. But James is going to tell us later on in this section that it's a very difficult thing. In fact, it's impossible in and of ourselves to just muzzle our mouths. The average person speaks about 15,000 to 30,000 words a day. And most studies show that women speak twice as many words as men do. This certainly is the case in our house. In Matthew 12, verse 36, Jesus says that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. So out of 15 to 30,000 words that you speak a day, how many of those are idle, idle babblings, or as the literal translation of this verse says, vain janglings. How many of these things are gossip and flattery and, and tail-bearing, unedifying, tearing people down, a result of bitterness? And how many of these things are truly edifying? It's sobering that 15,000 to 30,000 words a day will be brought to account as we stand before the Lord. Psalm 34, 13 says, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Speaking of bridles, verse 3 says, Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us and we turn their whole body. Love this illustration, being in Prineville. As many of us have spent many hours of familiar experience in this ranching community, with majestic and mighty horses, where their equine body is entirely tamed and brought under control by a simple little piece of metal inserted into the mouth. It is then that we are able to use and accomplish many incredible tasks with this beast as it is brought into the obedience of its rider. A giant muscular stallion is persuaded, is convinced, yes, it is better to hop over this creek than to go around, and we will do it. The bit accompanied with a couple things on your feet called spurs, help that to come to pass. 
But the beast begins to trust. The beast becomes a follower. He becomes certain of you. Psalm 32. The Lord says, I'll instruct you and teach you in the way you should go and just guide you with my eye. There's times when you become an experienced horseman and get a well-trained horse that you don't need to really use the bit anymore. Simple body movements and gestures and leaning a certain way or pressing with a leg will make this animal go the direction that you desire. And that's what the Lord wants from us. Just simple guidings with the eye. A life in submission to him. And he warns us, don't be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding that must be harnessed with a bit and a bridle or else they will not come near to you. The Lord will use the bit and the bridle if he has to. He says in 2 Kings to King Sennacherib of Assyria that I'm going to put a hook in your nose and drag you off. The Lord doesn't desire that. It's not exactly what James is saying anyways. The context of what James is telling us is that we have tongues in our mouths that are little tiny, little tiny members of our body, but they accomplish great things. Just as a bit, as a tiny little instrument, a tiny little piece of metal laid in a horse's mouth, laid upon their tongue. Verse 4 is another example. Look also at the ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. If nautical jargon be something you wish, James has an illustration for you sea-bearing scallywags. Fierce, violent, harsh winds. The perfect storm. It's a Euroclidon, as Acts chapter 27 calls it. Giant storm, small rudder. Small steering oar that moves this ship through the pressure against the waves wherever the pilot desires. Now this example adds something that the bit and bridle example do not. It shows that there is impulse and inclination of the pilot that can be a very dangerous thing, as we'll see in a little bit with the next example. But the tongue is like the rudder. It is tiny and unseen. You can literally feel it taking you where you don't want to go. Have you ever been there? The sentence starts coming out. The conviction of the Spirit is upon your heart. You know that by the time the sentence is over and a period is placed at the end, you have just revealed things that shouldn't be revealed. You've told things that shouldn't be told. You are in a world of hurting and being hurt. But that darn tongue just keeps going anyways. Might as well just say it. <laughs> Daniel Webster's defines the tongue in his dictionary as the movable muscular structure attached to the floor of the mouth. But Chuck Swindoll does one better by calling it the two-ounce slab of mucous membrane that fills our mouth. Little slab of mucous membrane that can get us into a lot of trouble. But a tongue that's controlled by Jesus Christ can be an effective tool for the gospel. Useful for God's purposes. As Romans 10.14 says, How shall they call on them whom they've never believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? The very tongue here that can bring destruction to our friends and family and our community. That can incriminate. This very tongue is the very method that the Lord has ordained for every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. To hear the wonderful news of God's son who came and laid down his life to forgive of the sins and reconcile to God. 
Verse 5, even so, the tongue is a little member that boasts great things. It's that little tiny slab of mucous membrane attached to the bottom of the mouth, but it boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. This itsy-bitsy muscle and the whole of a body boasts great things. The third example that we have goes from a bit to a powerful horse, a tiny rudder on a giant ship. The picture switches from the perfect storm to backdraft as James deals with arson crimes. The tongue is a little match that sets a beautiful scenery ablaze. I worked for the Forest Service right out of high school, and I was a stream surveyor, but in the fiery months, we were put on fire mop-up. We were to just simply put out stumps that were still smoldering from fires that were there. And one of my friends had been a seasoned veteran of firefighting, and he told me that at one point he had held a little match-up while they were doing controlled burnings. He held a little match-up to an old dried-out snag and watched the flame consume the snag in a matter of seconds. Most forest fires come from a cigarette butt that wasn't properly put out. As we had one of the worst fire seasons this last year, we were able to breathe the air here in Prineville. Do you remember? And it all snarted with, snarted. <laughs> started with the snap of a lightning bolt or the course of a typical lightning bolt, 224,000 miles per hour. Snap! And we're like, snap! That quick. How great a, a fire is kindled from that little snap. I asked Dan Freoff, who goes to our church, he's a fire captain here in town. I texted him yesterday, hey, come on, give me some fancy fire jargon for the sermon today. I said, nautical is to the sea as what is to fire. I said, a bit is to equestrian as a match is to, his response, tetrahedron. <laughs> My response, tetra what now? <laughs> tetrahedron. Is a fire triangle, triangle or a combustion triangle. It's a simple model for understanding the necessary ingredients in most fires. This triangle illustrates the three elements of fire needed to ignite. Heat, fuel, and an oxidizing agent, or just oxygen. A fire naturally occurs when the elements are present and combined in the right mixture. And this is what this article says that I read. It's awesome. Fire is actually an event rather than a thing. Isn't that interesting? Fire is an event where these other things just come together and it happens, it occurs. That's fire. A fire can be prevented or extinguished by removing any one of the elements of the fire triangle. For instance, if you cover a fire with a blanket, you remove the oxygen and part of the triangle can be extinguished. Now, Douglas Moo, who wrote a commentary on the book of James, he was talking about the ship example of a rudder and a ship. And it made sense to me with this tetrahedron or whatever it was called. He says, with the ship image, combining, uh, is comparing it with the bit example, we now have the ultimate will or impulse that controls the rudder and hence the ship. We now have a pilot James thus sets up the application he will make with these images with three components in place. 
the guiding desire or the steersman, the means of control, which is the rudder, and that which is controlled, the ship, corresponding in turn to human desire, the tongue, and the body. Our fallen nature, our fallen condition, where we've got our human desire, we've got this rudder right here, this mucous membrane in there, and we've got this body to be steered. Events just happen. (laughs) A whole lot of sin and a whole lot of destruction. Verse 6 tells us, and the tongue is a fire. We've gone from it being something that brings fire to that it actually is the fire. It's the world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell. After studying this verse this week, I was on carpet, so it made it difficult, but I attempted to push my chair away from my desk and just go, whoa. So I tipped over backwards. No, this is incredible. It shows that the depth of despair that we are in apart from Jesus by having these three things, human desire, the tongue, and the body. Psalm 122 through 4 kind of expresses where I was at. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you or what shall be done to you, you false tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with coals of the broom tree? You tongue with those sharp arrows? Those are destructive inflictions. Coals of a broom tree, you'll like this in Prineville, it speaks of the juniper tree that can retain heat long. This verse is a description of the wicked and their punishment. Not only is the tongue the match, it is the fire. And where does it get its fire? The end of the verse, verse 6, tells us it is set on fire by hell itself. Our tongue, our speaking, our language is a world of of iniquity. It is a universe of injustice. That tongue is so set among our members, the rest of our body parts, that it will defile the whole body. That's why verse 2 says, if someone is able to keep that tongue in check, they're mature, able to control the rest of their issues. The tongue is set among our members that it defiles the rest of the body. What comes out of a man defiles a man. Samuel tells us that in 1 Samuel 24, 13, as the Proverbs of the ancients say, wickedness proceeds from the wicked. My hand shall not be against you. Wickedness proceeds from the wicked. Isaiah 32, 6, the foolish person will speak foolishness and his heart will work iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error against the Lord, to keep the hungry unsatisfied and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. Jesus tells us, Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus says a little bit different in Matthew 15, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles the man. James said it, this defiles the whole body. 
Jesus continued to say, are you without understanding still? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? That those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. These are the things which, have, which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. This tongue is so set among our members, it defiles our whole body. Paul tells the Ephesians, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good, what is necessary for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Verse 6 tells us that it sets on fire the course of nature. This tongue sets on fire all of existence. James seems to mean that every sort of evil in the world finds its ally in an uncontrolled tongue. Studying some history, and I looked up some speeches of Hitler this week. The speeches of Hitler, for instance, a man who was an incredible orator, incredibly gifted, yet he spoke lies and deception that would set on fire the entire planet. Where over the course of seven years, some 50 to 80 million people are slaughtered. That doesn't all rest on Hitler, but a lot of it does. Higher figure of 80 million includes deaths from war-related diseases, famine. Six million people who were exterminated in concentration camps. It's interesting, Lindsay and I were talking about that. Just how the speeches of one man would lead an entire country, an entire world to battle and to slaughter. That night we were watching a courtroom drama where a lawyer said, you sir are dangerous as you speak the lies as though they were truth. She went on to say, it's as though you've taken a line out of Mein Kampf, Hitler's book, (laughs) to speak lies as though they were truth. It's an abomination to the Lord. Romans tells us that all the horrible product of sin is a result of lies. In Romans, you see that man has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And what flows out of that is a whole list at the end of Romans 1 that are incredibly horrible, horribly wicked. A son or a daughter of God ought to be known for truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. This tongue is a fire that has been set on fire by hell. How hellish and demonic is speech that is coarse, deceitful, discouraging, evil, false, filthy, foolish, flattering. It's been said that flattering is saying to a person's face what you'd never say behind their back about them. Gossiping is saying Behind a person's back, what you'd never say to their face. Hateful speech, haughty speech, impatient, idle speech from a busybody. Speech that is jeering and mocking and manipulating and proud, ridiculous, scoffing, slandering, unedifying. It's speech that tears down rather than builds up. It's unfair. It's wicked. And the wisdom book of Proverbs tells us that an ungodly man will dig up evil and it's on his lips like a burning fire. Like a madman, 
Proverbs 26 tells us, a madman who throws firebrands and arrows and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and then says, I was only joking. Goes on to say, where there's no wood, the fire goes out. The tetrahedron has been broken apart. (laughs) Where there's no talebearer or gossip, strife ceases. As charcoal is to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a talebearer or a gossip are like tasty trifles, and they go down into the inmost body. Don't we love a good, juicy gossip story? Don't you start to hear it and you're like, oh man, bring it out, bring it out, yeah. And then after you're done bringing it out, we're going to just totally slam the person that it's about. Ah, it's going to be great. Say it. Say it. That's how I am sometimes. And we've all been there. Well, I probably shouldn't say this, but... Oh, go ahead and say it, and then we'll determine afterwards if that was a good thing to say or not. You know what, guys? I think we need to make you know, a deal with each other. Just have like a blanket policy here in the church where... For me, man, I start to say something, and I'm kind of like... I don't know if I should say this, and then I'm afraid to look like an idiot because, oh, now I've started to say something that was somewhat bad. I can't go back. We just need to have this where we just are able to just stop in the middle of a sentence and be patient with each other. And I just need to process if this is going to be something that is going to be edifying to the hearer and impart grace to the hearer, or if it's going to be slander or gossip or, man, forgive me, I just need a moment. A gal who works at St. Charles came up to me afterwards, and they do a lot of clinics there that uh, some recovery stuff. And she says, we have a saying there. It's an old Native American saying that says, feather to the mouth. She says that the Native Americans used to, you know, they, in their speaking and their processing, sometimes they just have a feather and they just hold it. Just, just be still for a minute. Just let's think about this. Man, let's, let's do that with each other. Let's, let's allow. And, and when someone says to you, man, I probably shouldn't say this, or they start, and they, ah, and you see them struggling, man, give them all the freedom in the world to back out of what they were going to say. Hey, I, I don't need to hear it. I don't need to hear it. Just, you know, let, let's talk about something else. And just give it a blanket. That there's going to be awkward times, okay? And it's cool because we'd rather go down that route than allow the fire of hell to just be unleashed in our midst, in our fellowship times. That's how the enemy would love to lead us astray keeping our tongues from evil, and keeping our lips from practicing deceit, speaking deceit. In fact, Psalms 12 says, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. Do some amputation, Lord. How sad, though, that those running mouths bring such destruction into our communities, to the world, as Hitler is an example, but in the church as well. That the running mouths in the church can bring absolute destruction. We've got to guard against that. We've got to guard against that. J. Vernon McGee, I think he's on at noon on one of the Christian radio stations. Sounds like an old Oki. I think he's passed away. He says, I think that the church is more harmed by termites within than from woodpeckers without. Let's guard against. Let's stop each other when the termites seem to be appearing. Verse 7, for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Horses and cattle and elephants, camels, lizards, snakes, whales, dolphins, they've all been tamed by mankind. 
They've even trained whales to get all dressed up and walk on dry land. No, that's not true. That's something else. But Isn't it incredible? You can get a giant elephant to do that on a ball? I can't do that on a ball. A, a lion or a tiger jumping through a flame. This can be done, thanks to Siegfried and Roy. Yes. But the tongue... Verse 8, no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. This tongue is unrestrainable. No man can tame the tongue. You read about the guy that tries to put a muzzle on his tongue. It's going to be talking behind that muzzle. It's going to be trying to get those words out. We need to recognize that we in and of ourselves are unable to tame our tongue. Self-strength, self-motivation cannot be done. But what's impossible for man is possible for God. Through the gospel, new power is given. A new heart to change the flow. Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside Together they've become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. And to show just the depth of depravity, their throat is an open tomb. It is rank in these mouths. There is corruption. There is decay. The wicked man has a throat that's an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Literally, they have asps lips. The venom of a viper. You see the, the pictures or the video that they take like a rod or a stick and they put it in a rattlesnake's mouth and by like pushing down, it drips the venom out. That's what's going on in the wicked man. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. May the Lord show us today our condition without him. We have, no, we have no ability to keep that poison up in those glands. Just stay up in there. It comes out. It comes out of our heart. David Platt says, no part of us is in a more slippery place than the tongue. I think that's why God has given us teeth and a mouth. Teeth to cage in that deadly weapon and a mouth to close it in. You know, you see a lot of on the cartoons and on the shows these days, you go into like the secret FBI spot way up in a mountain and there's like doors and cages slamming and, you know, you got to go through like 40 different sets of doors in order to get into that. And man, Lord, do that in our mouths. Slam, 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 teeth, mouth. On a windswept hill on an English country churchyard stands a drab gray slate tombstone. The quaint stone bears an epitaph not easily seen unless you stoop over and look closely. The faint etchings read, Beneath this stone a lump of clay lies Arabella Young, who on the 24th of May learned to tame her tongue. It killed her, but she did it. <laughs> Learn to tame the tongue. Be an Arabella Young. A Puritan saying, always said that an unbridled tongue is Satan's chariot. It's Satan's chariot. He runs wild with it. Romans 6, 5 through 6, 
And 11 through 13 says, we've been united, if we've been united together in the likeness of Jesus' death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. That's such a beautiful verse. It's beautiful because, yes, there's a, a unity in Christ in his death. He died the death that we should have died. And by faith, we're united in death. Galatians tells us, I have been crucified with Christ. But the good news is, is we don't stay dead. That Galatians verse goes on to say, nevertheless, I live. And the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Yes, we have died with Jesus by faith. But we now live in resurrection power. And Romans 6 tells us that. There's a unity not only in his death, but in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That word reckon is an accounting term where you're making sure you're placing those funds in that account. You're reckoning accounts. It's also a very nice redneck word from Prineville. I reckon. I reckon my sin is dead. I reckon the old Rory is a dead man. And it's been said that it's as though when, we, when the old man died, he was chained to our body and we drag him around. And he always tries to come back to life and he always tries to get in his two cents and get those words in, but he needs to be reckoned as dead. He needs to be put in his place. And so verse 12 says of Romans 6, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Stop it! Is kind of a literal translation. Stop it! You can stop it by the power of the Holy Spirit. By the Spirit of God can put to death and kill the deeds of the flesh. Don't let it reign. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Our head, our shoulders, knees and toes, eyes, ears, mouths and nose, all of those things, those are to be presented to the Lord as worship instruments. Not as instruments of sin. So too the tongue. This tongue, oh, let the praise of the Lord ever be upon my lips. Let this tongue speak grace and kind words. Words that would build up. Words that would honor the Lord. But James tells us that there is so often hypocrisy in our tongue. Verse 9 tells us that with our tongue we bless our God and our Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in the similitude or the likeness of God. And so we bless the Lord and we worship the Lord with this tongue, and then we curse people who've been made in the image of God to bring God great glory. Even after the flood, when Almost all of mankind was destroyed by water except for Noah and his family. There's a law given to Noah that says in Genesis 9-6, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. One reason among many that the Lord hates murder is that it is destroying something that's been created to give God's glory. Even in its fallen state. And so when we bless the Lord, but then turn with our tongue and let bitter, murderous words come out of our mouth. We're slapping the Lord in the face. 
Man has been made in the similitude, the likeness of God. This hypocrisy is shown in verse 10. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be so. There's a rebuke for us that see that in our lives. Aesop of Aesop's fables says, The tongue is at once the best and worst of things. So in a fable, a man with the same breath blows hot and cold. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. If you're a brother, James tells us this should not be so. This is a test of our faith. If we allow the Holy Spirit to do a heart check, to do an examination, and we see cursing in that whole list that I listed of of horrible things that come out through the tongue, the fire, it should not be so. It's a great test of our spiritual health. Where are you at in your checkup today? Not only did I text our firefighter to see some fire examples, but I asked Dr. Nathan Reed, what can you tell about a human's body by just looking at the tongue? <laughs> you know? And he just gives me this list of stuff. It's like, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things. But just by looking at the tongue and, and looking in the mouth, they, they make you say, ah, all the time. You know, The Lord is doing that today in us. He's allowing us to see the flow And there is a flow. Verse 11 says, Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? There is a flow. From where? No man can tame the tongue because our problem goes deeper than the tongue. It goes down into our heart. On our own, we are in a helpless predicament. We need to recognize that our words are an indication of our heart. There is a heart issue. It shows our true spiritual condition. As we're training up our children in the way that we should go, we cannot just say to them, stop talking like that. Because it's like putting a band-aid over cancer. Those of you that love apples and love apple pie, imagine if your apple tree had a cancer in it that was causing it to just produce rotten apples all the time. You cannot go out to that tree with a basket of fresh apples and staple fresh apples on That does nothing to the problem. There's a core issue. There's a root issue. There's a book called Shepherding Your Child's Heart. Bringing the gospel to bear in a child's life. And don't just bringing moral improvement and moral behavior change. But showing them the root in their heart. That they need transformation of the Holy Spirit that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. Our sinful words come from a sinful heart. In Israel, there are salty springs. There are bitter springs. They're called sweet springs and fresh springs. Imagine the same opening out of a ground yielding one sip of fresh water and the next sip bitter. You would have to imagine it because it's impossible, James is telling us. We see this illustrated in Exodus chapter 15, verses 23 through 25. When the children of Israel had come to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. Then he cast the tree into the waters, and the waters were made sweet. 
There he made a statute and an ordinance for them, for there he tested them. Do you guys know that that story is a picture of Jesus Christ? Where there is a spring that brings forth out of the depth of the earth bitterness and death. There's no life. There's no hope. Bring the tree to it. Bring the cross to it. And it will be made sweet. If you're here today and you're convicted with the the filthy language, the cursing, the coarse jesting, the bitterness, the gossip, the hatred that has come from your mouth, come to the tree. Come to the cross. Maybe you need to come again to the communion table today and spend time remembering the blood and the body of Jesus. And allow him to do a work as you would confess your sin to him. Allow him to do a work of making bitter springs sweet springs. There's often a picture of the cross. There's another similar story in 2 Kings 2.19. The men of the, Israel, of, of the city came to Elisha and said, Please notice the situation in this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the ground is barren. And he said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. And he went out to uh, the source of the water and cast in the salt there. And said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From it there shall be no more death or barrenness. So the water remains healed to this day, according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. Do you see the gospel in that? Do you see what the Lord is able to do? I wonder if Paul had this in mind when he wrote Colossians chapter 4 verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. Salt is a picture of grace. Do you have bitter waters that show barrenness in your spiritual life? Come to the throne of grace. Let the Lord cover you in the salt of the grace of God and there will be life. And the Lord would speak over you this day, you who have a bitter, filthy tongue. I have healed that water. I have healed that tongue. From it there will be no more death or barrenness. And that promise would be over us today. From that day on, the water remains healed. Do you long for that? Do you rejoice for that? And maybe that's your testimony. My pastor Rob, he has a hilarious testimony. He's from Southern California and he was like voted in their uh, church least likely to become a Christian. (laughs) And he would burn rubber in front of the high school, flipping everybody off, burning rubber, driving across the grassy median, pull into the high school. And he says that every other word out of my mouth was the F word. And then I got saved. And just naturally, that stopped. And I didn't even know it stopped, he says. I was, he was working as an electrician apprentice, and his boss told him about two weeks later, what has happened to you? What do you mean? You don't cuss anymore. I don't know. I didn't even realize that I wasn't doing it. His spring had been made clean. I believe the Lord wants to do that in our midst today. Verse 12, can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. James takes a cue in referencing his brother Jesus' teaching, basically saying you can tell a tree by its fruit. 
You can tell a Christian by their tongue. Where are you at today? Are you a Christian in name only? True faith, real faith, faith that is able to save, has a transforming work of the Holy Spirit that will change your tongue. You guys can set your Bibles aside, and I just want to think about Jesus one final time. Peter tells us that we were called to a life of humility because Christ also has suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Now, watch how Jesus is the example for speech here. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, that's a verbal... uh, That's a verbal assault against him. He did not revile in return when he suffered. He did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins on his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you are like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let the tree be cast into your spring today. Look at the cross. How he who knew no sin was made sin for you. That you might be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to the one who never cursed By that I mean filthy, cursing. He cursed the fig tree. The one who never cursed. The one who was not deceitful. The one that didn't revile back. He took on himself our cursing. He took on himself our reviling. Our hostility. That we could be pure. I want to close in Isaiah 6, 1 through 9. Isaiah has a vision of the throne room of God, and it is fantastic. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Seraphim are special angels that were created just to worship the Lord. This seraphim had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. There's a music stand there. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it, with the coal, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. Let's pray, and let's cry for the Lord to come to us, Men and women who are undone today. Maybe you would say like Isaiah, I am a man or I am a woman of unclean lips. And I dwell in a culture of unclean lips.
for my eyes have seen the King. And as you would confess your sin before the Lord today, you would hear the Lord touching your mouth saying, I have touched your lips. The tree has been thrown upon your spring. The salt has been dumped upon your well. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Receive that today. Receive new life. Reckon the old man dead and the new man alive for right things. Are you a person who would come into this room today and today you could come to Jesus realizing that you had a sick, twisted, perverted tongue. That you need to come to Jesus right now to have it fixed because your tongue is against everything that the Lord is for. Come to Jesus today. It's the eternal purpose of God to heal you and to cleanse you and to conform you into the image of his Son.